Well, since February, whenever it's uh, been my turn to be up here to preach, we've been making our way through the letter of Ephesians. And today, some of you probably say, finally, we're at the end of that letter. Uh, During this week, I kind of thought about this a little bit, and I thought it's kind of actually, for me, like saying goodbye to, uh, to an old friend, to a good friend. I've been immersed in this letter for a number of months now, and I've really really grown to appreciate Paul's concern for these new believers there in the city of Ephesus. Here's this this preacher, this missionary, writing from a prison, expressing his hopes for a church, a church that he had planted in a city where he had previously spent about three years helping these new Christians get, get built up and grow in their new faith. Well, now we come to the end of the letter that he wrote to this church, some five years probably after he had had left them, in a very teary goodbye. You can read about that in 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 Acts chapter 20, how he got so close to them that, that these elders, these people in this church, shed tears as he left. And so he had an extreme care for this church. But this was a a real letter to real people in history. But the Holy Spirit inspired this letter to transcend history. And so whatever it meant to those people back in 62 AD when this letter was written, it also means to us here in 2010 AD. Not quite 2,000 years later. Some ways that they can be praying for you. And then you might summarize your letter and give a bit of a closing greeting. Well, that's exactly what Paul does right here in Ephesians. But instead of writing how he's doing and what he's been up to, he's going to get the mailman to tell them. Because the mailman is a friend of his, a fellow worker, a guy by the name of Tychicus. And then he closes the letter with a bit of a summary of what he's been saying all along using three words, peace, love, and grace. So my aim today is to look at these four verses, but I want to look at them as a sort of summary of what Paul has been writing in this entire letter, asking, what did Paul want to accomplish in the life of the Ephesians and in the church in Ephesus through this letter? And... What does God want to accomplish in our lives and in this church through this letter? Now the reason Paul sends Tychicus is there in verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. For Paul, it was important that these new Christians were encouraged in their hearts. And that likely means that Paul thought that they had reason to be discouraged and disheartened. And as new Christians, living in a pagan world, that possibility was definitely there. Now, a few of you went, like I did, to an encouragement seminar yesterday, and I'm going to kind of close that seminar. (laughs) I never told Stuart that I was going to do that. He doesn't know that I was going to do that. But 
this passage fits right into what he was saying yesterday. Now, in those days, Ephesus was a big city. It was the home of a, of a huge temple, a huge shrine to a goddess by the name of Diana, or in some instances, she's called Artemis, Artemis. And so the worship of idols was prevalent in Ephesus. And associated with the temple of all things, there was what they called temple prostitutes. There was drunken feasts. There was all sorts of debauchery that was going on there around the temple. It was a cosmopolitan city together with all its vices. And so it was hard to live as a Christian in a place where the values were far less than Christian. Paul knew it wasn't going to be easy for them to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart in that culture. He knew that discouragement might set in. Or he knew that there might be even a greater danger. And that was that there could be a a temptation to just kind of fit in. And so when he writes this letter, and when he gets to the end, he wants them to be encouraged in their hearts. And he's sending Tychicus to make sure that happens. Not only through the words in the letter, but also through his report about Paul and, and how he's doing. Now, brother and sister Christian, we need a letter like this today, don't we? As I was explaining the culture in Ephesus, I'm sure you thought, hey, that's not much different than the culture that we live in. We live in a culture where we're surrounded by values that are different than, than ours. And we can lose courage, too, in that constant battle to be different. We can lose courage in the never-ending struggle to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We, too, can lose courage in our weak efforts to, as chapter 4 says, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we, too, sometimes want to just give up and fit in. Sometimes we would rather just drift downstream rather than constantly struggle to to paddle upstream. Well, it's for times like that, for people like us, that the Holy Spirit inspired this letter. So how does Paul counteract that tendency? How does Paul encourage these people's hearts? Well, he reminds them, first of all, of everything God has done. He reminds us of what a a great salvation God has performed in in their lives, in our lives. He reminds us of how we have received power, power that's come from outside ourselves to, to be able to swim upstream. We need to swim, yes. We need to, to stretch out our arms and to and to kick our legs. But the power to keep going comes from what God has already accomplished in our lives. Through Christ. So Christian, when you feel like you're losing the battle, when you feel like you lack courage to resist the enticements of this world, go back to Ephesians and be encouraged. Remind yourselves of of great truths like right from the beginning, Ephesians 1 verse 3. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or Ephesians 1.19, where Paul prays that you will know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. 
Husbands and wives, when you're having a hard time in your marriage and you're facing discouragement, remind yourself of Ephesians 5, that God loved you and that he gave himself for you and was patient with you. When you think about the cross, when you think about how you were treated on the cross, how Christ was treated on the cross in your stead, it will encourage you to treat your spouse in a totally different way than the counsel that the world will give you. Children, when you get discouraged that your friends get to do stuff that your parents don't let you do, remind yourself that obedience will bring blessings, both in this life and in eternity. If you're discouraged because of what's going on in the workplace, your heart can be encouraged when you read Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, where you'll find that whether you're a boss or whether you're an employee, you are far more than that. You are a servant of Christ. Keep that in mind when you're dealing with the issues at your workplace. And so Ephesians will encourage your heart in every area of your life. You've been called out of the world, and you are now empowered. You are now able to walk as a Christian in a, in a largely anti-God world. So be encouraged to walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a Christian because, Ephesians 3.20, because God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. Well, the second thing God wants this letter to accomplish is to elevate the reputation of the church. To elevate the reputation of the church. The church's reputation in these days, in this culture in which we live, is taking a bit of, bit of a beating in the eyes of the world, especially. Whether it's moral scandals, and we heard another one last week, or whether it's an unwillingness to stand for truth, or whether it's lack of biblical precision, the church has become, in the eyes of the world, part laughable, part political, part social agency, or part just plain wimpy and weird in the eyes of the world. And in some cases, that's been warranted. But in another sense, when the gospel is rightly preached, when the ordinances are celebrated like we did this morning, when the purity of the church is upheld, the fact that the world looks down at the church should not be unexpected. We are different. We are citizens of another kingdom, even while we are still part of this world. So that shouldn't be unexpected. But what is worrisome is that even in so-called Christian and evangelical circles, the church as we know it is starting to be seen as unnecessary or an intrusion or irrelevant. In some circles, it's seen as an old, unenlightened way of practicing our religion. Instead of corporate gatherings like this, where we all gather together, where the word is preached, where worship happens, the new thing is that we can have a conversation between two people at Starbucks and we can call that church. But the rest of the New Testament, and especially Ephesians, know of no such thing. When people are saved, they are saved into a church, into a fellowship of believers, into a body with Christ as its head. 
Even in these last few verses, we can see that the church is assumed. In verse 19, if you go up a couple of verses, Paul asks the church to pray for him. And he asks them to pray that, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul knew that for his ministry to be effective in any way, he needed the prayers of the saints. He counted on the prayers of the church. And then he sends Tychicus. But look at how he describes him. He is the beloved brother, the faithful minister in the Lord. I love that description. Those are church words. Beloved brother, faithful minister. One emphasizes our our position, that we have been adopted into God's family. And the other emphasizes what we do. We, We minister to each other. We serve each other. This is not an individual salvation that we have. We get saved as individuals, but we're bought, brought into a fellowship of believers. I love the word brother or sister. We should call each other by that name more often. When you greet people that you know are believers, especially your fellow church members, greet them as, as brother or sister. I know that might sound a little weird at first, but it emphasizes the fact that we are a family. One time in Jesus' ministry, someone noticed that that Jesus' flesh and blood, mother and and brothers, were waiting to talk to him. And at first, this is in Matthew 12, at first Jesus seems to have a a cold-hearted response. When they tell him that your brothers and mother are outside, Jesus says, Who are my mother and brothers? And then he points to the disciples and says, My mother... And my brothers. That's them right there. My mother is kind of strange. Twelve men there. She says, Forever who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Those who do the will of the Father are brothers and sisters. People who follow God's word are our family. And so one of Paul's purposes for writing this letter is to elevate our love for the church as a place in which believers grow and as a place in which believers are challenged to to serve. We are rescued from death. We are rescued from the world and we are brought into the church. We need brothers and sisters in our walk with the Lord. Paul needed people like Ty, I'm having trouble with his name, so I'm just going to call him Ty. (laughs) A fellow worker, a partner in the gospel, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, someone who is able to encourage people's hearts. What Paul could not do himself because he was in prison, he had every confidence that Ty could do for him. Ty was probably one of the one that read this letter to the church for the first time. He was probably the guy that explained the letter if they had questions about it. Paul needed co-workers and fellow laborers in the gospel. He knew the necessity of the church, and he tried to embed that into the minds of the Ephesians through this letter. And if you look through Ephesians, this is all over the place. You can't miss it. Last time we looked at the last verses of each of the first three chapters. All of them have to do with the church. Pastor Wayne this morning read that great benediction in chapter 3 
for which we named the series, To God Be Glory in the Church. Ephesians 3.10 is a huge verse with massive implications. It says there in Ephesians 3, verse 10, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. You want to see what the wisdom of God looks like? Look at the church. Look at the people. Look at the kind of people God has brought together. It's amazing. We're all from different places. We are all different in each other's eyes. Different likes, different dislikes, different ages. And yet God has brought us together. Look at the way they love, they love each other. Look at the way they worship. Are they perfect? Are, are they without problems and conflict? No, of course not. But they are saints. They are the redeemed. They are the bride of Christ. They are the family of God. And when Jesus comes back, he is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for the church. So, brother and sister, do you understand the value of the church in your growth as Christians? Do not minimize, do not trivialize, do not push aside the priority of the church. Give yourself to the church. John Stott says, No one can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. End quote. Ephesians is the gospel of the church. And so make, up, make sure that you raise up the value of the church in your own life and for your own growth. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Why, Why We Love the Church, says, Don't give up on the church. The Bible knows nothing of churchless Christianity. And so Ephesians is written to encourage your hearts. It's written to raise up the value of the church. And finally, it's written to remind you of what God has achieved through Christ. In his closing greeting, Paul brings up those great words that remind us of what God has done for us in rescuing us from the wrath to come. It says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And so Paul sums up his letter with those words, with, with three closing words of prayer, of wishes for the Ephesians as he ends the letter. Peace, love, and grace. But these aren't just closing greetings. These are, if you think about those words, they're three gospel-saturated wishes. And they're three words that are fundamental to what God has done for us through Christ. When we think of our lives as Christians, these three words should constantly be on our minds. Without them, we are lost in our sins. We are without hope. Without them, we are what Ephesians 2.1 talks about, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind by nature, children of wrath. That's a dreary picture, but that's who we all were. But then came peace and love and grace. First peace, Ephesians 2.13. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And verse 16, he reconciled us to God in one body through the Christ. Through Christ. Through the cross, sorry. Now we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we have that peace. We, we're at war with God. Now Christ is our peace. Next, talks about love. You can go back to Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. First chapter says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. It's all because of his love. And then grace. This is all over the place in Ephesians. But sticking with chapter 2 and verse 5, For by grace you have been saved and raised up with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, he says again in verse 8. Those three words pack a punch, don't they? Peace, love, grace. All of them deal with our sin problem. All of these are a remedy for the fact that we break the Ten Commandments. And for that, a penalty had to be paid. That's what we were talking about today as we were reading Isaiah 53. Without peace from God, we are enemies with God. And we must pay that penalty. Without love from God, we are under God's just wrath. Without God's amazing grace, without God's undeserved favor, we have no hope. Because our own works will only bring about condemnation. There might be some of you here today that would not describe yourself as a Christian. Others of you might believe yourself to be a Christian, but have never been brought under conviction of your sin. I would ask that you consider these words this morning. Hold up the mirror of law against your life. Like every other human being, you will fall short of God's standard. And that's where these three words become so precious. In his love and in his grace, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bring peace. Breaking God's law brings separation, brings enmity. But in his love and as a free gift of his grace, God sent Jesus into this godless world. And he became the perfect law keeper. And even though he was perfect, in his greatest act of love, he willingly died on a cross so that people could be saved. He paid the penalty for our crimes. In order to be saved, the Bible says that you need to repent from your trespasses and then place your total trust in what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. If you want to know more about that, I, I encourage you to talk to me after the service or, or talk to Pastor Wayne or talk to any of the men that were up here. For my Christian brothers and sisters, be reminded of these great truths of Ephesians. Ponder these great truths often. Peace, love, grace. One of the great things about the church is that we can remember these truths together. That's what we do every time that we gather on the Lord's Day. And that's what we did specifically this morning during the Lord's Supper. In the death of our Lord, we are reminded of the peace that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And we bask in the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And we're reminded of God's great love in sending his son. And as we close Ephesians today, I pray that you would receive 
these blessings from Paul's pen and from the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray.